week we got to celebrate Easter, Resurrection Sunday, together. So we took a quick little break from Matthew to, to look at that. Um, but we're going to be getting back into Matthew chapter 23 today. <clears throat> the discourse we see here in 23 and that we've already kind of started to get into in the book of Matthew is situated after Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. Right? And it's before the weekend of his arrest and his crucifixion and his resurrection that we kind of focused more on last week. But we're still in the middle uh, that, of that week between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday. I believe we'll be spending at least a couple more weeks, uh, probably several more weeks of our time together, uh, studying this one last week of Jesus' life <clears throat> uh, leading up to Passover and, and the culmination of his ministry. And over the course of these few chapters, like Mike mentioned uh, during our music time, Jesus is dropping some hard truths here, some, some judgment, some heavy-handed, <clears throat> um, convicting statements that he makes. He makes some piercing accusations <clears throat> and passionately prophesies for repentance. He shines a light on the hopelessness of this lost generation and the calamity that will inevitably befall it, while providing at the same time some hope of redemption through the source of light itself, which is himself. So to approach this passage in the right context, I do want to do just a quick recap of, of the events that have led up to this section of teaching. So it's been after a long journey with his disciples that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem. And he was at first received with a very warm welcome from the crowds. That's the Palm Sunday that we uh, like to celebrate. He's still very unpopular, though, with the religious leaders and the authorities. And Jesus soon made it clear that he was not in town. He didn't come to Jerusalem just to rub shoulders with you know, the, the religious elite and to gain favor with those in authority. He wasn't really there to advance himself politically or financially. In fact, one of the first things he does... Uh, when he gets to Jerusalem, he goes straight to the temple and causes a scene. Are we kicking out again? All right, give me one moment here. All right, so Jesus uh, causes a scene in the temple. Um, he kicks out all the merchants from selling there, uh, and he, you know, he really makes quite, a, quite a ruckus. And then after he's cleared everything out, he settles in there, he stays there and teaches. And that's where we are. That's where we've been for the last few weeks of Matthew, in the temple in Jerusalem with Jesus, teaching and interacting with people, having conversations uh, with people around him. He's dealing with questions of his authority and tests, like we saw a couple weeks ago, the, uh, tests that were designed to trap him in his words. Um, he's also been telling parables like he often does about the kingdom and of God and about the Messiah. We last left off with those three uh, confrontations or conversations with Jesus, each beginning with a question from either the, fat, or the Pharisees or the Sadducees attempting to catch Jesus in some kind of scandal. And of course, we saw how in every one of those three conversations, Jesus always replies with incredible wisdom and authority, and he completely astounds his, his listeners and the people who were attacking him until ultimately they have nothing left to say. That's how chapter 22 ends, with a statement that after nobody could answer him, nobody even dared ask him any more questions. There's kind of a, a, a finality to that statement, indicating that Jesus is now kind of ready to speak his mind, or free to speak his mind. 
And chapter 23 now launches us into <laughs> kind of headlong into this uninhibited section of, of teaching, the last major section of teaching in Matthew. And that's, this is going to take us all the way through to the end of chapter 25. And beginning with today's passage, a lot of the teaching that's to come here is not heartwarming. Uh, which is why Mike mentioned it's nice that we have a nice warm sunny day to go out to afterwards. Um, but I do think there's ultimately, if you look at the big picture, it ultimately brings us to the wonderful good news of salvation through Christ. But in doing so, it has to highlight the depravity which led us away from it in the first place. So in true you know, prophetic fashion, you look at really any of the, even the most dark and dismal prophecies throughout the Old Testament, there's generally still a thread of hope. That's a strong, if, if at times thin, a thread of hope that's woven into what's otherwise a rather frightening patchwork of, of chaos that is the reality of this earth. And I, I will warn you, I, against better judgment, decided to attack the, enti- uh, the, the entire chapter of of Matthew 23 today, so it's not going to be comprehensive. There's a lot in here. I'm going to kind of focus a little bit more on the first part and then do an overview of the second part. Um, and then I think I'm going to, Mike is going to, I know, have more to say that I didn't say today, so I think there might be some overlap uh, and return to this chapter a little bit. But today, my goal is to kind of give you a fire hose overview of the whole chapter and hopefully not be too overwhelming. So let's first go ahead and, and read the whole chapter together. It's, it's a rather long passage, but it's kind of a finale to the time that he spent teaching in the temple, and we're going to transition a little bit after this. So Matthew chapter 23. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. For they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear extra wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels. And they love to sit at the head table at banquets and in the seats of honor in the synagogues. They love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi. Don't let anyone call you rabbi, for you have only one teacher and all of you are equal as brothers and sisters. And don't address anyone here on earth as father, for only God in heaven is your father. Don't let anyone call you teacher, for you have only one teacher, the Messiah. The greatest among you must be a servant. But those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the door of the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You won't go in yourselves, and you don't let others enter either. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cross land and sea to make one convert, And then you turn that person into twice the child of hell you yourselves are. Blind guides, what sorrow awaits you? For you say that it means nothing to swear by God's temple, but that it is binding to swear by the gold in the temple. Blind fools, what is more important, 
the gold or the temple that makes the gold sacred? And you just say that to swear by the altar is not binding, but to swear by the gifts on the altar is binding? How blind! For which is more important, the gift on the altar or the altar that makes the gift sacred? When you swear by the altar, you are swearing by it and everything on it. And when you swear by the temple, you are swearing by it and by God who lives in it. And when you swear by heaven, you are swearing by the throne of God and by God who sits on the throne. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you are careful to tithe even the tiniest income from your herb gardens, but you ignore the more important aspects of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. You should tithe, yes, but do not neglect the more important things. Blind guides, you strain your water so you won't accidentally swallow a gnat, but you swallow a camel. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you are filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of the cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean, too. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees? Hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, beautiful on the outside, but filled on the inside with dead people's bones and all sorts of impurity. Outwardly, you look like righteous people, but inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy and lawlessness. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law, and you Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build tombs for the prophets your ancestors killed, and you decorate the monuments of the godly people your ancestors destroyed. And you say, well, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we never would have joined them in killing the prophets. But in saying that, you testify against yourselves that you are indeed the descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Go ahead and finish what your ancestors started. Snakes, son of, sons of vipers, how will you escape the judgment of hell? Therefore, I am sending you prophets and wise men and teachers of religious law. But you will kill some by crucifixion. You will flog others with whips in your synagogues, chasing them from city to city. As a result, you will be held responsible for the murder of all godly people of all time. From the murder of righteous Abel to the murder of Zechariah, son of Barakiah, whom you killed in the temple between the sanctuary and the altar. I tell you the truth, this judgment will fall on this very generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings, but you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned and desolate. For I tell you this, you will never see me again until you say, Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. All right, so again, I know there's, there's a lot in there. <clears throat> We're going to just start with, with verse 1, back up to the, the beginning of the chapter. Verse 1 just tells us first who Jesus is talking to. Whereas in the previous passage, in chapter 22, Jesus was conversing directly with the Pharisees and with the Sadducees and some others. <clears throat> now he turns and, and shifts. Uh, he's now speaking to the crowds and to his disciples. He does talk about the Pharisees. I don't know if the Pharisees were still there to hear this or they had left. <clears throat> 
Either way, uh, whether or not they're still there to hear it, he's talking about them, not to them, but about them very boldly and directly. And it's genuinely for the sake of his listeners that he's talking about the Pharisees. Remember, as has been the case throughout the whole story of Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem, everything that Jesus says and does comes out of a deep love for his people and out of unity with the Father and sharing the passion and love the Father has for his children. So even though this final discourse is going to be pretty heavy at times, and it starts with Jesus speaking out against the Pharisees in the beginning, it kind of includes judgment against the whole of Jerusalem by the end. But the goal of Jesus saying these things is not just to really bash the reputation of the the Pharisees or to publicly shame and humiliate them. It is kind of humiliating, but it's not out of spite just for the sake of bringing them shame. He's turning to his disciples and, and anyone else who's there willing to listen to warn them. It's for their sake, warning them not to draw their example from that of those hypocritical leaders, but rather to follow him instead. He warns them, notice too, he warns not that they should ignore what the scribes and Pharisees say, what they teach, but rather they should ignore the example that the Pharisees set. So Jesus doesn't, is, never says that what the Pharisees are teaching is necessarily wrong or bad. In fact, he starts off acknowledging that they are very well-versed in the Torah, the Old Testament. They're filled with head knowledge. They understand and can interpret the law of Moses. That's valuable knowledge that should be listened to. His warning is that their actual lives, their lifestyle and attitude, and their treatment of others, the, the rules that they impose beyond Scripture, that none of that was actually a good demonstration of understanding the Torah or of a person who spends close time in fellowship with Yahweh and allowing his spirit to transform them from the inside. Instead, they're, they're like actors. They're pretending to be something they're not. They're corrupt and, and rotting faces underneath a mask of righteousness and piety. Hypocrites. He literally says, do as they say, not as they do. Listen to what they say, but don't imitate how they live. He criticizes their, their strict and their burdensome teachings that they imposed, these rules that they imposed in the name of following God's law, but missing the intent of the law while doing so. He describes them as being pompous and vain and puffed up, as concerned with being seen, that he, they like people to see them. They like to feel impressive and important. They like to be held in high esteem and and treated with respect when walking through the street. In a way, I think you could say that in their hearts, they were, whether or not they would say this, I'm sure they wouldn't, but they were seeking a form of worship from others. They they liked when people worshiped their their status and their their status of having been given divine authority and, and power and privilege and of their unsurpassed knowledge and righteousness, these these men would have felt like they knew more than anyone else about Scripture, and that they were more righteous than anyone else. And verse 5 describes some of the physical accessories they would wear to literally show off how godly and how important they were. 
which I guess it kind of makes sense. We can kind of relate to that to some extent, I think, today. I mean, everyone knows that you get extra godliness points if you show up to church carrying a, a physical Bible, right? I know we all have it on our phones now, but there's something about actually carrying a Bible that makes you a better Christian than, than not carrying a Bible, right? Right. And what about actually wearing a tie to church? That, that probably gets you extra bonus points, too. Even if it's in the inner pocket, maybe you don't get points that way. It has to be tied around your neck like a noose. Yeah. Song lyrics on your shirt. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. Now, the specific traditions that they had, you know, wearing boxes of prayers on their sleeves might seem kind of foreign, but it's, it's really not all that foreign. It's, it's common human nature. It's a common human tendency, that underlying trap, the temptation that any of us can face is to assign more value and priority to outward and even self-centered performances of worship rather than the genuine, the personal, and the God expression or God-centered expression of love and surrender that is true worship. In verse 7, Jesus gives an example um, that's really more symptomatic of, of the deeper heart issue, and it's how much they love being called rabbi. They walk around looking all important, and when someone actually calls them rabbi, it's like the acknowledgement, uh, the, the validation of their status. And at face value, that word rabbi, it simply means teacher <clears throat> in Aramaic, I believe. Um, it's, it's just teacher. It's a descriptive, harmless word. <clears throat> but in this context, they valued that title so much because it was a title of, of veneration and of pride for them. And it's not that their position is not worthy of respect. It is. You know, in theory, like Jesus said, they are the ones who are chosen as, as the interpreters of, of the law. What they do, the scribes and the Pharisees, it's incredibly important to the Jews. It is worthy of honor and respect. But they themselves had come to love the respect itself more than the underlying privilege of being able to to study God's word, to share it with others, and the, the reason for their position being worthy of respect. Instead, they just wanted the prestige. Now, today we don't really use that word teacher as much as a, of a title to directly address someone. We don't usually go up to someone and just say, hey, teacher. Perhaps a little more relatable to church culture today would be that title of pastor, right? That's, uh, there's certainly nothing wrong with the title pastor, anything, there's nothing wrong with the title teacher either. Um, it's used in the New Testament, that's where we get it, so there's certainly nothing wrong with the word pastor. But there's certainly some baggage, it's a specifically churchy word, um, and there's associations that people will have with that word one way or another. For some people, it means putting anyone with that title of pastor up on a, a pedestal. <clears throat> and, you know, maybe that temptation of idolizing or, you know, worshiping that position or that person because they're in that position. For other people, it might mean associating all pastors with being egotistical, perverted jerks because that's been their experience. And in reality, you know, pastors are the same as, as anyone else. We're all, in, we're all sinners in need of a, a savior. We've all been gifted and called in different ways to serve each other as brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. 
Now, that's one reason we, we tend to use the word elder more than pastor here. It's not that we don't believe in using the word pastor. It's just that elder is a little less common, and we kind of enjoy the, the conversations that that brings up um, to kind of get around all of that baggage. What does it really mean for someone to be an elder or a pastor of a church? Whatever titles we use, we should all be viewing each other with, with respect as fellow image bearers and brothers and sisters, recognizing everyone and what they do, whether it is teaching or cooking or babysitting or praying or singing or uh, fixing cars. I mean, no matter what we do, they all can and should be used for the edification and the unification of the church and for you know, being a blessing in our communities. What we shouldn't do is view any one person as being more holy because of what they happen to do or be uh, called to do, or to latch on to any one teacher who happens to uh, be in the spotlight more than others as being the one person that you align yourself with. Unless, of course, that one person, that one teacher is Christ Jesus himself. And, you know, we might relate to certain role models better. There might be some who are more mature or uh, more knowledgeable in certain things that we're interested in. And it's, it's, it's okay to even have, you know, sort of favorites as far as, you know, teachers who you, you really are able to learn a lot from more so than others. And that, that's okay. Um, just recognizing that no one is more holy or more uh, valuable in God's sight than, than anyone else. And no one is, is perfect either. Everyone has their, their faults. But only aligning yourself with Jesus primarily and not becoming a disciple of any other one human is what Jesus is getting at here. Paul definitely gets into the weeds with this later on uh, in the New Testament when people are aligning themselves either with Peter or with Paul uh, and, or whoever it was that baptized them. Is, you know, I'm, I'm a follower of Paul. I'm a follower of Peter. And Paul said that that is to totally miss the point that we're all followers of Jesus. We've all been baptized into one baptism, one body, one faith, one authority overall, and that's the authority of, of Christ. So I think that's one of the major uh, points that I want to hit home today, is that it's good to learn from each other, from those who went before us. Uh, so for some of you who are in that Ephesians class that we're going through together, you're getting to know one of my personal favorite teachers, Tim Mackey. Uh, Dr. Tim Mackey is, is someone I've learned so much from over the last several years. I can relate really well to his teaching style. Um, I'm really grateful for the, the ministry that he helped to start and for how it's helped me grow in my faith and understanding of Scripture. Now, some people might, might not relate to his teaching as well as, as some others. Um, and I'm not, just because I have tended to get the most out of his teaching, doesn't mean I'm going to start calling myself a Mackeyan. You know, I'm a Tim Mackeyan or, or a Bible projectist. You know, that would seem kind of ridiculous, right? If, or if the people of NCF were divided between uh, Beolsians and Steltzists, you know, that, that would just, that seems so silly, right? And yet throughout church history from the beginning, that's been the human tendency, the temptation to focus more on, on one teacher or one theologian or one writer, one pastor, one evangelist putting all our stock in everything that they say, while not, not ever actually taking time to go straight to the source ourselves, letting the Holy Spirit teach us directly and intimately like he wants to. Now, I'm not saying, I was tempted just to say, you know what, just don't even listen to me, don't listen to Mike, we're done. You know, why even bother? 
But it's not that we don't want you to listen to us. Obviously, we believe God wants to use us, wants to speak through us, and, and to share what he's shown us in, in his word. But that doesn't make us any more or less important than anyone else. And it doesn't mean we won't ever make mistakes or get something wrong. So which is why you'll hear us say over and over, check what we're saying against Scripture. If, you, if, we, if something comes out that you, know, you think sounds off, you know, let's have a conversation about it and we'll, we'll talk through it. There are many, many people much smarter than either of us who have, have lots to say and, and we do have unprecedented access to the wisdom of hundreds of different people who went before us. We don't know it all. We don't have all the answers. I certainly hope you can trust in our intentions uh, and generally say what we, the, find what we say to be reliable, but, but we're not perfect. We don't know everything, and we're never going to pretend to. So when Jesus says, don't let anyone call you teacher, don't call anyone on earth father, he's not literally banning the use of those words or those, those terms. In fact, he even says he is going to give to them, teachers and prophets. So he's not even suggesting that we have to be totally cynical and distrusting of anyone who's in any sort of position of authority. The church is filled with very diversely gifted people, including teachers are part of that, one part of that. And and Jesus is not trying to negate that here, but he is warning against the tendency that we have of glorifying our human teachers our mentors, relying on their example and their testimony so much and building so much of our faith off of that one person rather than on Christ. And the greatest danger, I think, in that is that if our faith is constructed around one person's teaching, if we truly get to know that person and who they are, inevitably the moment will come when we see them fail or find some issue with their their views And if we've built everything up around that person and something happens that could, you know, risk our faith just collapsing completely because we've built it around them versus around Christ. And it's in Christ alone that our hope is found and that our faith is founded. And moving on to verses 11 and 12 here, Jesus makes a statement that honestly should feel pretty familiar by now. He's said some similar things like this before. Um, In verse 11, he says, The greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled. Whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. So it's kind of that classic upside-down, backwards, reverse language about the kingdom that we've come to expect from Jesus, basically turning everyone's notions, expectations up, uh, upside-down on its head. You can see the Pharisees are clearly exalting themselves. They're not humbling themselves. When they should be exalting God and helping others to worship God. So then the next few verses that follow are specific condemnations against the Pharisees and other religious teachers. Now again, there's a lot in here, so I'm just kind of going to go through them quickly. There are, you might see them referred to in your Bibles as the seven woes. The seven sorrows or judgments, these are seven different prophetic pronouncements of judgment. They're all aimed at these religious leaders. And instead of Jesus kind of extolling their their virtues like they'd be more expected of hearing from others, speaking about how great they are, 
he's going to call out their, their hypocrisy and lack of faith very specifically. So we're going to look at each one of these briefly, each of these seven, um, and then I expect we'll probably come back to some of these to look at in more detail. Uh, but I just want to give an overview of, of the things that Jesus is accusing the Pharisees of. So first of all, in, in verse 13, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So he's accusing them of deterring people from the gates of heaven, like some kind of unholy bouncers, turning people away, and, and they won't even go in themselves, and they'll, they'll do everything they can to, to keep everyone else from getting in if they can. In this case, Jesus, remember, is the true door. Jesus is the gate, the path into the kingdom, the path to eternal life in God's kingdom. And the Pharisees are trying to pull people away from him. And so they are pulling people away from the door. So beware of anyone who does attempt to draw you away from Jesus or, or sow any seeds of distrust in him. Ultimately, that is, it goes back to even the, uh, the grave sin that he talked about a few chapters ago, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit to go against the conviction of, of truth when it presents itself in your heart. So then, so that's verse 13 I just read. What's the next verse after 13? What comes after 13? What? Who taught you to count? <laughs> I heard someone say 15. Does anyone have a verse 14? Nobody? You do have it. I was going to say, there are a few translations that will have it. Do you, do you have like an asterisk or brackets or something, that, a footnote? Brackets. brackets, yeah. So, depending on your translation, you know, some of you might have a verse 14. A lot of them just skip right to verse 15. Uh, if you do have verse 14, it says something like this. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. So again, if you do have that, there's usually a footnote or some kind of indicator. Um, and if you included this verse, then it would be the eighth woe. So there's either seven or eight, depending on whether or not you include this one. It certainly doesn't contradict any of the teachings of Jesus that we find elsewhere. We have the Gospels recording him saying, you know, very similar things, uh, protecting the widows and not, you know, making proudful prayers However, in the most reliable manuscripts that we have of, of Matthew, of this particular chapter in Matthew, the best manuscripts we have don't include that verse. So most translations choose not to include it there or just do so with sort of a footnote. So that's what's up with that. And whether or not you include it in this list, Jesus certainly did con con uh, condemn the mistreatment of widows and pretentious prayer. Uh, but I'm going to move on to verse 15 in which Jesus essentially accuses them of being breeders of hypocrisy. He uses strong language here, basically describing them as continuously reproducing amongst themselves, raising up new scholars and teachers among them, passing on their own hypocritical ways to those who come after them, and enabling this sort of perpetual cycle of corruption and other problems. And he calls them, you know, he says they become even twice the children of hell that you were. Rather than, as they should have been, living honestly and humbly before each other, you know, learning from each other, growing together, confessing to each other, repenting 
together. They instead developed this system over time which just continued to feed into their, their ego and their pride, their, their comfort and prestige, with each generation becoming even worse than the last. What you get as a result is this group of highly intelligent but very foolish individuals. They know a lot, but they're blind to the truth. They're completely caught up and engrossed in their self-righteousness, and they're ignorant of the truth that's standing right in front of them, despite all that they know. In fact, the next thing that he calls them in verse 16 is blind. He calls them over and over again, blind guides. How many of you would get on a bus or in a taxi if you knew the driver was blind? And you're going to go for a cliff drive. I mean, nobody, right? That's a, a death wish. And that's basically what Jesus is saying is happening. These people are jumping on board with the Pharisees and unwittingly jumping aboard a vehicle that's just hurtling towards disaster because the, the, per, the people at the steering wheel are blind. And to illustrate this, Jesus draws attention to their teaching on, on making oaths. <laughs> Apparently, they placed more emphasis on the physical elements, like the gold that was in the temple, the sacrifices that were laid on the altar, than on the, the sacred presence of God, which those objects were meant to represent. It's blindness. By, by drawing distinctions between you know, the, the specific physical elements of the temple while making an oath, well, it means more if you swear by this versus this, they've demonstrated really a complete obscurity to the reality of God himself being invoked as a witness to that oath. Which is, that's what makes the oath binding. And in fact, you shouldn't have to make an oath at all, right? You see later on in, in the New Testament, the simple commitment to truth and to integrity really ought to be all that's needed to make an oath binding for us. To let your yes be yes and your no be no. You really shouldn't ever be called into question whether or not your promises are valid based on what object you're swearing on. There's no need to swear on any object, let alone make trivial distinctions between swearing on one object or another. It's, it's blindness. And this blindness is what leads into the misguided enthusiasm that we see in, in verses 23 and 24, which I think this is actually a pretty funny example. Jesus turns, as he often does, to the use of, of hyperbolic imagery to make his point here. He describes the Pharisees as being so meticulous when it comes to the details of the law, they would filter out a tiny gnat from inside their cup. But so blind to the bigger issues that they would swallow a whole camel that was swimming in that same drink. I mean, it's an absurd image. Obviously, no one could swallow a camel, but it illustrates the absurdity of their zealous attention to making sure tithes were paid for down to every last spice in your spice cupboard. If you missed just a pinch of basil from your spice in the spice cabinet, from including that in your tithes, boy, are you in trouble. And yet they, they forget about what really matters, which is justice and mercy and faithfulness. And he's not saying that it's wrong to tithe or to filter out that gnat. Yeah, no one wants to drink a gnat either. But it's ridiculous to filter out the gnat and ignore the camel. It's getting the priorities messed up. If we focus primarily on the things that do matter the most, then those smaller things, 
in my experience, will either kind of fall into place or we realize that they're really not worth spending too much time or energy worrying about after all. You know, certain things seem less important when we focus on the things that do matter. And then the next uh, couple images that Jesus use, uses are, are pretty similar. Uh, first, in verses 25 and 26, he describes them as dishes that have been cleaned and, and scrubbed meticulously on the outside, but still remain filthy dirty on the inside. And that's just a, a gross image. I mean, if you had the choice to drink out of a cup that had been washed on the inside, but was still dirty on the outside, or drink out of a cup that was dirty on the inside and washed on the outside, which would you choose? Obviously the one that's clean on the inside. And of course, when we wash dishes, we want to get the whole thing clean, but the most important part is the part that's actually going to be touching the food, the inside of, of the dish. If we have to choose, the priority should always be the inside, and yet the Pharisees put all their priority on the outside and completely neglected their hearts on the inside. You get a similar image in, in 27 and 28 of whitewashed tombs. He says they're like the outside of a grave that had been beautifully painted and, and decorated, but in reality it's just covering up rotting flesh and death. Now, again, the practice of whitewashing tombs is not something Jesus was condemning. This was actually a practice that they would, uh, they would paint the tombs white as almost a warning for other Jews to know that there was something dead in there, especially during this time of year, during the Passover, and lots of people would be coming to Jerusalem uh, for visitors to know, oh, there's a dead body buried in there. Don't, don't go touch that because that could make you unclean. It's kind of a courtesy. So it's, it was a common thing to have these whitewashed tombs. And kind of like Will go and, and, and put flowers on graves of loved ones who've passed. Um, they would do similar things to decorate the tombs. Now, he's, he's not condemning that or even, you know, decorating tombs and those traditions. What he's condemning is that the lives of the Pharisees resemble those tombs. Our lives should not resemble whitewashed tombs. We should be spiritually alive inside, and that will come out. Rather than being dead inside and trying to fake being alive outside, that doesn't work. And he does kind of continue on that train of thought, though, because he's talking about tombs, and then he brings up the tombs of their ancestors, right, and the prophets of old, in verses 29 through 36. Jesus, to summarize this, he's essentially accusing them of being either, they're acting like they're proud of a shameful legacy, a legacy of ancestors who did terrible things and who rejected the prophets. They're kind of celebrating that horrible history. Or... <laughs> They're making statements like, oh, well, we're so much better than them. You know, if we lived during that time, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have killed the prophets. It's kind of like us thinking, oh, well, if I was there, I wouldn't crucify Jesus. I would, of course, follow him. I'd be one of the, the good guys. That's kind of their, their thinking. Whereas, really, you know, we, we can't say that. We're just as sinful and, and guilty as, as anyone, as, as the very people who crucified Christ. He died for our sin just as much as theirs. They're just as bad or worse than their ancestors. Their ancestors just murdered the prophets, right? They're going to murder the Son of God, the Messiah. And he says that they will be held accountable for their sin just as much as their ancestors were. And yet they'll also be just as 
uh, welcome recipients of grace and forgiveness, which is incredible. So those, those seven or eight woes, those judgments, those are dire warnings to the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day. And they should be read primarily within that immediate context. It's specific to them. And those, you know, those people that Jesus was addressing in that moment, he wanted to warn his disciples. He wanted to, you know, kind of, if any Pharisees listened, we're not really told, but I'd like to think that some of them maybe uh, listened and, and took to heart what Jesus said at some point in their lives. Um, but they do also, even though it was specific to them, it, these verses serve to warn us about the same sin of hypocrisy, that same temptation that we face today. We're all called to true godliness, to love and faith, whereas pretension and hypocrisy will only lead to sorrow and woe. And Jesus will uh, end this chapter with with sorrow um, that concludes this section in verses 37 and 39. It's that lament for Jerusalem. Jerusalem who kills the prophets. He's, he's sad and he says, I, how I've wished to gather you like a hen. That's a, an image of protection and, and motherhood and nurturing. That's Jesus' heart. It's like he's seeing his children run away from the goodness and protection that he offers instead to explore you know, destructive, fair, uh, destructive behavior and, and prideful, lustful desires. So after having said all this against the Pharisees, Jesus is upset, yes, but it's not really that he's angry. The tone even seems different to me than it did when he first got to the temple. There was some, you know, passion there. Here the the passion is really out of just deep grief. Grief for his children, for the city of Jerusalem, for everything that it could have been, but that it rejected from being. So despite, and I want you to keep this in mind throughout all the time we spend in this sort of a judgment-focused section of Matthew, despite all that severe judgment that he's pronouncing against Israel, all that prophecy, what he's truly longing for is for them to repent, to receive God's grace through his message, whether it's before or whether there's a seed that he's planting now that may bear fruit even after he's been crucified and raised again. There's, I think, a lot of people who didn't quite understand the message until they saw it in in hindsight. So again, there's quite a bit in this chapter. We may spend some more time in it. Ultimately, the core message, especially in the the first half of it, is is a warning against hypocrisy. And that's kind of what I wanted to focus most on today. Hypocrisy is fueled by pride, greed, callousness. It's a trap that any one of us can easily fall into. Now, do your friends, your family, your co-workers, do they know that you follow Jesus? They know that you're a Christian, that you go to church, or more accurately, that you're a part of a church? They should, if it's a part of our lives, which it should be, they should know. That should be sort of an evident aspect of your life to anyone who's, you know, gotten to know you a little bit. We're not ashamed of the gospel, but those around us shouldn't just know that we're Christians just because we say so or because we have great music lyrics on our shirts that point to Jesus. Those are good things. It should be evident by our lives, in our love for each other, in our Christ-like humility and service. 
sure, if you want to have plaques or signs on your walls and, and outside in your yard, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with making it known. But we also have to strive to not just sh- uh, speak the truth, but to live it and to live in a manner that's worthy of, worthy of our calling. If our lives, our attitudes, our, our language and our actions, if the outward expression of what's inside does not reflect the transformative power of the Spirit in our hearts, then all we're doing is pretending, just like the Pharisees. And of course, none of us is perfect. We have to be humble and willing to confess to each other, repent to each other, and in turn, be graceful and forgiving to each other. Even the teachers and leaders who we most respect still have flaws, and we have to recognize that that nobody is perfect other than Jesus. Like Jesus pointed out, even even with the Pharisees, as much as how much terrible things that he had to say about them, they did still say some of the right things. They knew the Torah. And he said, listen to what they say, just don't imitate what they do. Oh, one uh, fairly recent modern and, and public example of how this can play out that, that came to my mind, um, and I know it came to Mike's mind too, uh, is the unfortunate capstone to the legacy of a guy named Ravi Zacharias. Anyone familiar with Ravi Zacharias? It's a pretty well-known name in in Christian circles especially, um, and even outside. He was a prominent Christian scholar, apologist, public speaker, is an excellent speaker. He delivered some incredible speeches. He engaged very thoughtfully, logically, uh, scientifically in many of the most difficult topics and questions that, uh, you know, came from those especially questioning Christianity and dealing with apologetics and kind of defending uh, the faith. And unfortunately, soon after his, his death in 2020, it was revealed that, you know, a rather disturbing sexual scandal uh, involving his career. And, and I think a lot of people, when all of that came out, because it was all covered up, there was no accountability. He was never, during his lifetime, uh, you know, he never came clean or repented of it. So there's kind of that lingering sensation of disillusionment, I think, by many people. Maybe even people who came to faith in Christ because of something that Ravi said, and what he did was, was certainly terrible. But that doesn't mean that everything he ever said was wrong. You know, it shows that our salvation is ultimately dependent on God. And that our sanctification is dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And he will use other people. But our salvation is not dependent on those whom he may use to draw us to him. So just because nobody is perfect doesn't mean God doesn't still use each of us in his redemptive work. There's things we can learn about the mistakes that someone like Ravi made. We can also learn from his, his lifetime of, of study and of, of the value that he placed on Scripture. And although, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thankful for the many pastors, teachers, professors, friends and family, theologians, writers, current ones and ones who've been dead for hundreds of years, you know, many, many people from whom I've learned and many others have learned and continue to learn, those are all great gifts to the church, people that God has used uh, in, in marvelous ways. 
But although God has gifted the church with teachers and leaders, nobody is of higher importance in the kingdom than another. If anything, it's, it's backwards from what we would expect. Our identity and our value does not come from either our own position, our own status. It doesn't come from our mentors and guides that we may find ourselves attached to or following. Our identity and value comes from the one true teacher and guide that we all share in common, the one source of salvation and truth. We would all be blind leading the blind without him. So we should be be cautious of offering our lives as an example of Christian living, and yet we should also be striving towards that ideal, recognizing we'll never be perfect, but we can learn so much from each other. We can provide accountability for each other and sharpen each other. Discipleship, both in leading others and in receiving discipleship from others, is how we grow and mature in our faith together. But it's the sake of unity and of growth, not to elevate ourselves or anyone else over another. As we come now to celebrate a time of of communion, that's one of the key elements of communion is is to celebrate that unification. Communion is the the experiencing of something communally in relationship and community with each other. And so I I just uh, ask that we spend this time kind of uh, contemplating um, and, you know, where our priorities are in life. Are we focusing on the little details? Are we focusing on our own righteousness and how good we can look in front of others? Are we idolizing one teacher or one ideology other than Christ and Scripture, putting that above it? Are we allowing any, any of that to become... Uh, pride in us, where we're feeling like we're better than anyone else, especially within the church family, or thinking, oh, I'm so glad I'm not like those sinners like I was before I, you know, found Jesus. We ought to be humble, and we ought to uh, be striving for unity within, uh, within the church, and communion is just a, a great opportunity to kind of reset our focus on that. So I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to have Mike come and lead us in communion. Uh, Father, I I just thank you for allowing us to be here together this beautiful day. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, even in dealing with uh, people like the Pharisees and the scribes. You, You still loved them, even as you were pronouncing judgment on them, because your heart is for all of our our hearts not to uh, turn against you, but to turn towards you, to allow you to soften us and to become receptive to uh, the truth of who you are and the message that you brought of, of love and of true peace and righteousness and of the, the beautiful kingdom that we can experience when we unite ourselves in you as your church, as your body, your bride, and recognize that you are the one true authority in our lives. Help us to surrender to you, to, to be humble with each other, to surrender our own uh, self-righteousness and pride, be willing to talk to each other, to talk to you, and to uh, allow the work of your Spirit to continue to sanctify us and to uh, bring us together. 
In Jesus' name, amen.